Good evening. It's uh, the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is your host, John Landis. Um, happy to bring you the second in a series of interviews with Mike Maneri, noted vibraphonist, um, jazz uh, leading light uh, American of the American jazz scene for, uh, for decades. Um, always a very active uh, producer of music and a great player. Um, this is part of the uh, jazz interview series done by NYU um, with Dave Schroeder uh, doing the interviewing. Uh, we want to thank them. Um, and uh, so much for doing this. Again, this is the second in a three-part series, so stay tuned in the future for the third. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, learn more uh, from Mike Maneri's interview by Dave Schroeder of NYU. Am I going too fast and too no, no, furious good. here? Good. So we went to we went to Japan with with Gad and Brecker and Krolik and, and Eddie, and we played at the Pit Inn, which was a nightclub. Two sets a night, or maybe three, and during the day we recorded an, a, an, a, another album, like two albums. Like it was day and night we were working. <laughs> Nobody slept, uh, which came out much later, uh, but a year later it was called Step by Step. Mm -hmm. But the original album was called Smoking in the Pit, mm -hmm. and it was a huge, huge success in Japan. It was a gold record within three months in Japan. And nobody knew who we were here in the States. Absolutely no. We were, within two years of, of smoking in the pit, we were playing for 5,000 people in Japan. I mean, it was just, you couldn't get in. There were kids out of our, at our hotel room, like, like 50, 70 kids, like with signs and like, you know, hi, you're back again. You know, it was like we had this fan club. <laughs> and, and then here in the States, we couldn't even get, a, we couldn't get any gigs. Now this was before the Brecker Brothers hit the Brecker Brothers band. That's later. Yeah, that's later. That's much later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is 78. 79. Wow. No, we played we actually Don Grolnick quit because he was not only got an, an offer from Linda Ronstadt to be her pianist, but we decided, well, let's play we you know, on our way back from Japan, let's play Hawaii, and then we could play something in L.A., and then we could play in Greeley. We got a gig at Greeley, Colorado at a university. And we played this jazz club in Hawaii. There were six people in the audience. We just finished playing for almost 10,000 people. It was like, no, they, and the critics here, you know, they didn't even know. The, the album was only released in Japan. But even when we... You know, we made another, when, when Gad left and Peter joined the band, we made one more album as Steps, which mm -hmm. was called, uh, what was it called? <laughs> Steps. Joe, what was it called? The third album, Paradox. Okay. Paradox, the same band with Michael, but Peter replaced Steve. Because mm -hmm. Steve, I think, joined, the time joined Stuff or some. I forget. But still, Nothing, you know, we were playing at the seven, we were just playing at the Brecker Brother Club. We weren't doing that many gigs, but then when it became Steps Ahead, and there was a reason why we had to add the name because somebody else had trademarked the, mm. the name Steps, some band in North Carolina. And then Ileana Elias replaced Don Gwellnick, and then we started touring in Europe. That's what sort of broke the band. Touring in Europe. You know, and I, made, I made a big mistake. I, I have all the Steps records from that North Carolina band. You do? Yeah, I, I, 
please send. I've, I've, uh, they, it must I've be asked on YouTube. the wrong person here today. <laughs> it must be on YouTube. <laughs> How are they? <laughs> uh, I'm talking a blue streak here, but I'm trying to get through like all the decades yeah. here. But that's <clears throat> so. What was it that I mean? You know, looking at it from a consumer point of view, me, for instance, uh, I would I would buy those buy your records, Steps Ahead, Steps, um, all the fusion things, the Brecker Brothers, everything from that period, Joni Mitchell's records, uh, Weather Report, thinking that, you know, it, this is an amazing life, and and this is what you guys were kind of new to this music, and and this is the scene. And uh, we don't realize it. It was a it was a long journey to get there. It was, yeah. and it was a it was a trade off from playing uh, swing and bebop and jazz into fusion. So what you and you were right there for all that. Was was fusion uh, difficult to sell, or would it be instantly popular? Well, it became popular. Uh, of course, Weather Report. I mean, we played for huge audiences in mm -hmm. Europe. I mean, even here, you know, especially Weather Report, more than Steps Ahead. Steps Ahead was never really received very well by the critics. Well, neither was Weather Report in some cases. Mm -hmm. I think Mr. Gone got, got one, one star oh, and downbeat right? or something like oh, that. Yeah. Um, so they, as far as Steps Ahead was concerned, they loved the first album. I don't mean the one that we did in Japan, but the first uh, one that was released here. Uh, on Electra Records. That was just Steps Ahead. It was just called Steps Ahead. Yeah. It was with Ileani Elias. Mm -hmm. That was well received. This was an acoustic album, basically. Even though I was using some MIDI stuff on the vibes, I guess they could, the, the critics and whatever couldn't hear that. So they, they actually liked that. They, that. That record got pretty good reviews. Um, but then when we, we did the next album, which was Modern Times, which a lot of musicians love that record. We started incorporating some synth sounds and electronics. That's when they just gave us, gave us the thumbs down. And even our, you know, it confused our audience. Because I remember the, the Michael telling me, or was one of the guys in the band said, hey, you know what, we, we came in second in two categories. I went, what do you mean? We came in second in best acoustic band and came in second in the best electric band. I said, well, how could that be? <laughs> how could that? So if we had put all those votes together, we probably would have won in one, one category. Wow. So it was, not that that meant that much to, to, to us, but it was just kind of fun, humorous, you know, that. Can you talk about when you first? I mean, Weather Report was just like, yeah. you know, right from the beginning. It yeah, was yeah. one sound coming out of Joe. You know, he was, wasn't playing acoustic piano or anything. But it was a great, great band. And Return to Forever, all, you know, that all started happening. Mahavishnu Orchestra was amazing. I know you were very close to Mike Brecker. Can you talk about yes. when you first heard him and first met him? First met him at a White Elephant. Uh, ah. Can I bring my brother in, Randy, for a jam session? You know, jam, we, we didn't even call it jam session. Whoever showed up, their wives, kids, and everything. Because he it would have been place. coming from Indiana from school, right? I guess so. I'm, I mean, I know they're, they're from Philly, but I, I don't know. Both him and Randy went to the University of Indiana. Right. Or IU, I think. Yeah. But he came to town. I don't know. If, that was when I first met him. Yeah. It was on one yeah. of our nightly. Well, how did he impress you? 
Well, he, as soon as he got up and played, well, of course he played the chart, you know, but as soon as he got up and played the solo, the other guys, and Ronnie Cuba, pretty good sax section, George Young, mm -hmm. Frank Ficari, and everybody just went, what? What's this? <laughs> like, what the hell? Where did he come from? It's just like an alien just landed, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> it was kind of like that with Gad, too, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. There was some, he turned some heads. Or to Tony Williams, too. It's like one Tony. Yeah. You know, just like. So once all those guys finally got heard, they, they started to rise up into the scene? Or what happened? Is, was, was it that uh, easy? I mean, I shouldn't say easy. It's for somebody like Michael Brecker to come to New York, be heard, realize, hey, this is something new. And what does he do? What what happens? Well, Randy was already an established se session player. I mean, these guys were not going on the road. They, there was so much money to be made as a session musician. And you, you made a choice. You either just like, you became a touring band and that's what you did. That was your focus and that was your life, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was great too. And remaining in New York and playing all these different sessions, even though some of them were just like nightmares, you know. But, you know, in my case, I had a family. I had quite a few children, you know. And uh, I liked the idea, for me, that I could, you know, write for television and make some pretty good money to feed the family and then do something with West Montgomery or... Uh, Jim Hall on a session, you know, on a record or...
Thanks so much for joining us. This is WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you are listening to an interview of Mike Maneri, vibraphonist, uh, by Dave Schroeder of the um, NYU Jazz Interview Series, Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School. So, uh, you know, I guess the, the question is, you, you've done all these things, but when you started out, when you were like 16, 17, you probably had no idea where this was heading. I mean, who does? No. Well, you know, I always, you know, it's dreams. It's dreams manifesting something that's real. I love dreams. I mean, because I, you know, grew up with a radio. No telephone, no television. Radio and movies and live Broadway shows. So, so you just like... I could be there, I could be, I could play with Benny Goodman. And I mentioned before, he called yeah, me to yes. play a gig and I, was, I couldn't make it. But I mean, you know, uh, for me, it was a dream come true, but I had dreamt that. It wasn't like I didn't want, I didn't think it was impossible. But there was an environment there that allowed me to, you know, to, of course, fl so, flourish. So it's probably it's exciting. Kind of, that scene doesn't exist now for these young people. Right. There aren't 25 recording studios in New York and, and, and maybe 20, 30 different dates going on every day. You know, at RCA, you know, Perry Como session, over there's Sinatra session, there's, there's jingles uh, from two to four. I mean, it's just, it was, I mean, you could be a B, a B player and read really well and still keep pretty busy in New York. I don't mean be like bad, I mean, but you didn't have to be like the A, on the A list. Those guys were really Was it shocking killing. to see uh, some jazz artists that you thought were purists coming in to do a Maxwell House coffee commercial? No, because I know what the, what the residuals paid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mel and Thad, you know, they, yeah, they did some touring, and, but you know, I was on, I don't know how many sessions I was on with Mel. On some did you know Toots Dealman's? Well, Toots, I knew Toots before the session. I, I met Toots when I was about 20 years old, and he had, was living in Yonkers. When I moved to Yonkers from the Bronx, he was my neighbor. And he and I were doing little club, crappy club gigs up in, up in uh, Westchester. And he was only playing guitar with me. And I would drive him home every night. And he just lived like two miles from my house less. And uh, I remember when I first heard Bluesette on the radio with him. I didn't even know he played harmonica. He never wow. mentioned it wow. or whistled. So we became friends our entire life. and. And uh, I played on his duet album, East West Coast, East Coast. We did a lot of sessions together. And he was really, really a beautiful cat and special, special musician. And did me the ultimate favor when he no longer played guitar. I put together, these are great albums. I'm going to plug them. I did two volumes of guitar players playing their favorite Beatles tune. And I had all kinds of names, you know. 
everybody from like Adrian Ballou, like so somebody like that, to Holsworth, Steve Kahn, Larry Coriel, I mean all the Abercrombie, everybody played their favorite Beatles tune. And I asked Toots if he would play guitar, because it's a guitar album. And he says, I haven't played the guitar in years. Mm-hmm. I said, you gotta do it for me, just do me one favor. He said, okay. You know, he, he came in, Kenny Werner was playing with piano with him and his arranger. Kenny did this beautiful arranger, arrangement of Michelle. And he not only played guitar and whistled, you know, like the quest chorus, right? Mm-hmm. Then he played harmonica too at the end, but when it modulated, it was just like, man, I had tears, I was like crying. <laughs> I wow. was in the studio when I heard it. Well, he told me that he made his money uh, whistling the uh, Old Spice deodorant commercial. Well, I, and that, that allowed him to move from Yonkers to... I'm so happy to... for him. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? sang, uh, you know, I sing on this album, uh, and I've 
I sang, because I had a jingle company, I just sang a tag for a, one of Dave Vitamins. Should we be talking about this at all? Sure. <laughs> but the singers made, really, the singers made the money. Mm. They made all the money. They made, because they residuals, the way it worked, is like every time it was played, they get paid. Whereas as a musician, you get, they could play it a million times. Every 13 weeks, you'd get a residual, a fee. Mm -hmm. But if you sang, it was a whole different thing. I sang uh, something on one of Dave Vitamins. It was just a little tag. It was like five notes on a demo. And, they, and I wanted to hire a professional singer, but the ad guy just said, no, no, we like your version. And I made more money from that stupid commercial than I did from everything else I made that year. Just wow. Wow, can you sing it for us now? No, I'm interested in that. <laughs> Absolutely not. My... Hey, I want you to tell one more story. Uh, uh, the State Department tour with Buddy Rich. Yes. Uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I guess this was uh, 61. 1961, John, uh, John F. Kennedy, this cultural exchange tours. I guess I could look out to you folks now. And... Uh, so they hired a fellow by the name of Joey Adams, who was an old vaudevillian. You know, straw hat, cane, tap dancing, da-da. Everything, everything ended like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then they <clears throat> hired the four step brothers, who were fantastic tap dancers. And they hired three young ladies, like the, the Lennon sisters, or Lemons, whatever they were called, you know. Mm -hmm. So they had, had three girls singing, kind of this corny kind of. And I, I know I shouldn't say the corny, but it was, you know, in its day, it was. You know, I, I, I know them, and they're good friends of mine. It was probably popular on it TV. It was popular, you know, and they were very lovely, very lovely uh, girls from. Uh, and and they also had. Uh, this is how insane the, this tour was, and this is how you're. Our tax, tax dollars are spent sometimes. They had a woman who was a magician who had birds that flew out of these veils that she had, right? So that was part of our act. They had a guy that blew up balloons and would make little animals out of them and would put it on his wife's head. She was part of the team. So it was like a vaudeville, because that's all this guy, Joey Adams. Mm -hmm. And his... His wife is still alive, Cindy Adams. She has a gossip columnist oh, in the yeah, New York sure. Post. She's had it for the last 50 years. Um, so they went out there, uh, you know, and there was some more of these corny acts. And then Buddy Rich was, we were going to back the acts. Of course, Buddy wouldn't do that. I wanted to play drums. And I would back them. And he would only play for the, step, the four stepbrothers. And he'd go out there and tap dance with them. His buddy was a pretty good tap dancer. And then I would sit behind the drums. And so, make a very long story short, because this, this, this tour went on for months. Our first gig was in Kabul, Afghanistan. <laughs> Hello, New York, Kabul, 1961. We're in the middle of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and they set up the stage. We had, you know, our own stage, generators, lights, in the camera. desert? We're in the desert, whoops. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You'll have to believe that. And uh, why are we here? And there was this huge movie screen behind us that they set up. And what they were basically, we were selling jet planes. You know, they were just, mm -hmm. you know, because we were competing with the Russians who were 
in Kabul, they were like smart enough to be in the city and <laughs> perform. Uh, so we were there, uh, I forget how long, too long, actually, because everyone got uh, dysentery within three days, mm -hmm. which we call the Kabul trots. And it, and it followed us through India or you know, New Delhi, Bangalore, what was Bombay then, Calcutta, Madras. Then we went to Nepal, we played in Kathmandu, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. We played for the, we played for the prince who was now the king of Thailand. It was a jazz. Saxophone player. Right, we, had a, yeah. we played for a show, you know, for him with the balloon guy. And, the, and then he invited us, to, buddy, to back, you know, come to my palace with your band and we'll have a jam session, which that was fun. While we were at the palace, we had to like, couldn't be any taller than him. You had to be like, you know, mm -hmm. and then back out of the room kind of thing. Uh, which of course, Buddy Rich loved that. <laughs> and, uh, and so we went to his uh, private quarters, whatever they were, this room where we jammed with him. He's kind of a Dixieland player. Mm. And he gave us this beautiful, solid silver cigarette case with a gold coat of arms on it which I still have, and I don't know, treasure it, but it's worth something, I think. <clears throat> and then we just went to, we played in Saigon, played for the Shah of Iran, we played in uh, for another dictator, in Sarkarnov in Indonesia at the time. Mm. So we were all over the world. But long story short was, did I say long story short before I got into this long story? <laughs> <laughs> Buddy had problems with our, always had problems with the liaison people from the State Department, because they come, would come in and you'd like, give us a little, you know, these are the rules here, this is what you have to do. And he hated really doing that. He mm -hmm. was just sick and tired of the whole, you know, scam. It was really pretty awful, you know, because we got to play at the end of the show, then he had to go out and tap dance, and you know, everything was, ta-da! <laughs> it was really funny in Kabul because it was like about 20,000 Afghans out there, you know, sitting out there. And everything ended with this. It was a total silence, you know. <laughs> it was just like nothing. And the thing that they really loved was the balloons. They just went nuts for the balloons. And, and the first show we did, we, Joey, this Joey Adams decided to blow up all these like tons of balloons and thrown to the audience, which caused a tremendous riot because everybody rushed the stage to get balloons, and then and some of these people got really got bloodied up. So that we stopped doing that. <clears throat> but what I there's two stories to this. And there's two endings. One is that Buddy left the tour. He said to me, Mike, let's go back to New York. We'll get Healthman, who was a, road, a roadie, to play drums or something like that, and uh, finish the show. Because they, they wanted to get rid of Buddy anyway, the State Department. Mm -hmm. He was giving them a few trouble. And I said, no, we can't leave the guys here. The next day, he was gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I wound up being billed as Buddy Rich. Wow. You know, who knew? In Phnom Penh, you know, in Saigon, I mean, just oh, Madras, India. <clears throat> you develop an attitude at that point? 
Uh, well, I had an yeah, attitude Rich, being from there. the Bronx. I had it then when I was younger. I had a little bit of a, you know, an attitude. That's why he and I get along mm. <clears throat> because we probably like we'd be on the floor like pounding each other. So. <laughs> but but I always had a I had a great time with him. Because wow. there's so many horrible, there's so many stories from the 70s with this man. Because he took me, uh, I went everywhere with him. I drove all of his sports cars with the guys, and I did all the arrangements. I hired all the musicians. I went, I hung out with him with Lenny Bruce and Sinatra and the Rat Pack and Mel Torme and Jerry Lewis, all of his buddies, all of his Hollywood. So I was like with him all the time. <clears throat> so I said, come on, let's go. Did you feel comfortable in that scene? Sure, yeah. You hang out with Sinatra. Was that comfortable? It, it was like the Bronx. <laughs> it was a little bit, a little bit Bronx, uh, you know. It was, it was wild, you know. It was. And at the, at the you same, could, you could watch the Playboy, how you have to show. Yeah. You know, it's on YouTube. You know, there was only one Playboy club, so it was. It had its. And I'm sure you played the Playboy Club. We played the, on the, the Playboy Club, and we played the TV show. Mm -hmm. And uh, appeared on the TV show, and then went to the, <clears throat> went to the club later, when they, they would close it down, everybody, and it was just one big party.
Thanks so much for joining us. This is WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you are listening to an interview of Mike Maneri, vibraphonist, uh, by Dave Schroeder of the um, NYU Jazz Interview Series, Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School. You know, I think we'll close this segment by uh, saying that you've revealed that Growing up, you were surrounded by a nurturing environment with, with all types of music and entertainment and things mm -hmm. that inspired you. Uh, seeing what's around today, what, do you have any advice for, for all these guys here? How do, they, how do they find that same inspiration? I know. It, it's, uh, it's a question that I'm asked every, everywhere I go, whether I'm you know, doing a workshop or clinic or just you know, playing somewhere and then young musician will come up to me and say, you know, you did all these things, and, and I don't, uh, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. I'm sure there's, <clears throat> you know, my, my philosophy might be different than other musicians, you know, who just always say we're more purists, which is, that's totally great and it's cool. I was interested in lots of different genres. You know, I was, I, after I, that toured Buddy Rich, the wonderful thing that had, did happen was I got a chance to hear all this music, folk music, in every country. And it really opened up my head, you know, because I was just like jazz, bebop, you know. And then that turned my head around, and when I came back to New York, I decided I'm going to stay in New York because there's other things starting to percolate, which was the jazz, rock, and folk music, like Joni Mitchell, you know, just young and coming on the scene. And, and getting a chance to play on their records and, and, and moving up to Woodstock in 69, which I did. I raised my family up there and being up there with, you know, Jack DeJeanette was up there and Carla Blay, who you interviewed. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, there was so many, the music was happening up there. Everybody was playing at this club called the Joyous Lake. Everybody played there, including Mingus, you know, Sonny was, lived nearby, so. We could talk about. Did you go to the Woodstock that. concert too? The big. Festival? I was. I was going to play with. I was. I couldn't get there from. I was living across the river. I had a farm. I, we could talk about my farm. I had a hundred acre farm. I was a farmer on a weekend farmer for a while. Hmm. Um, I couldn't get to the. You know, I got like three miles from where my farm was, and then it would just the traffic just stopped, and there was I just sat there for about six hours and seven hours, seven hours, and I just went, oh, forget about it. Like, I turned around. I went, Who were you oh. supposed to play with? Tim Harden. I was gonna, oh, yeah. We were going to yeah. sit in with Tim, you know, Warren and I. But uh, anyway, to be continued, I guess. To be continued. We've run out of time. Well, you, you didn't end your uh, words of wisdom. Well, I, yeah, I think, well, let's see. I, you know, technology is the future. Uh, I mean, it's coming. It's here, and it, it's always been. It's, it's ever since I started playing. You know, like I said, I just had a. I only had a radio, and then then I had a phonograph, and then I had. TV, we had TV, and then from TV we had, uh, you know, and then I amplified my vibraphone. Then I started playing with the guitar players that were turning it up, you know, and then there were electric keyboards and electric, you know, and. And it's just, it's unstoppable, mm -hmm. really. So, you know, you either embrace it and be a, a part of it and make sure that 
you know, you, you get your voice, your, your voice gets out there. And it's, I think it's possible. Or you can, you know, uh, take the road that's, that's not traveled as well <laughs> and, and just, you know, try to make it as a whatever you decide, you know, acoustic player or something like that or, or with your own band. Because I could imagine, as you know, you don't know what's coming up next. I don't, you never know. I mean, I, I was open to, I wrote a theme song for a movie called The Lost Boys, uh, and which was not a hit movie at all. Joel Schumacher was a really great cast. Uh, this is back in the 90s or something like that. It's become a cult classic now. Did I ever dream that Eminem was going to take a piece of that thing and, or, you know, not that I've ever bought one of his records, <laughs> but I certainly cashed that check. <laughs> All right, the last question I was going to ask you about is, how did Steps Ahead form? Right, right, that's a good, that's, that's, that's a good question. It's not easy to answer it because <clears throat> it was such a long process. It was a period of decades. It really began in the 60s um, when I first started playing with Eddie Gomez and Jeremy Steig and Donald McDonald, which I think we talked about in part one, and, uh, and Warren Bernhardt. Mm -hmm. And then I started this band called White Elephant, and I think we mentioned that in the first... We did, but we can did. I, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned Jeremy Steig a few times. A lot of people don't know much about him. He's an amazing I, flautist. I, I knew about him because there's a record called What's New with Bill Evans. Yes, and a lot of people don't know about that. He, and, and Jeremy used to play at the Vanguard with Bill. He played the last set or something, and they were very good friends. And he and Warren were great friends. And, uh, and then they had this jazz rock band in the 60s with Eddie Gomez, and they were backing the, uh, Tim Harden, who was a folk artist. Mm -hmm. And, they, and Joe Beck was also a guitarist, and they included me in the, in the Malay, I should say. <laughs> it was a Malay, uh, especially when Tim was not behaving. But it was sort of the beginning of jazz rock, not fusion, that, that came later. Well, how did, uh, just to go with Jeremy for a minute, how did he fit in with uh, uh, Hubert Laws or Herbie Mann? He didn't, you know, he really, he was his own. He was a free spirit, which happened to be the name of Je Larry Coriel's band, the Free Spirits. I don't know if you remember know yeah. that. But he, you know, he played like through electric flute, you know, in the sense that he would <clears throat> put, a, put his flute through an amp and a pickup on it and loops and stuff like that. And, but he could play bebop. You know, he was he was comfortable in both idioms, and he had a, a, a unique voice. He was different from those guys. Very different. It was kind of like if we go back in history, he, you probably knew this guy too in your earlier life was Pee Wee Russell. Sure, I mean he wasn't like Sam Most, who I played with with, with, with Buddy uh. Rich, who was like played with Herbie Mann. They had Mann and Most. You know, they had a duet for years. So he wasn't coming out of that. He was coming out of this whole Jimi Hendrix. He was like the Jimi Hendrix of the flute. 
Who was the other great flout, uh, rock flautist that, that for many, many Ian years? Ian Anderson? Yeah, it yeah. was kind of like, but better, <laughs> if I may say so. Hipper, for him to play with Bill, and Bill loved us playing. And you, I don't know if you have that album or if you listen to that album. You ever hear that expression, uh, Sam's the most, but Herbie's the man? Yeah. There's another flute player that, that you probably true, knew. But yeah. Uh, Paul Horn. Yes. Remember those, those records he did live at uh, the Taj Mahal? Absolutely. So Absolutely. Those, were, those were a big hit, I think. Yeah, Jeremy never had a hit. I mean, he, whereas <clears throat> neither did Sam, but Herbie was a really good businessman. Yeah, he really knew what the audience liked. Well, I'm glad, we're, anyway, talk I'm getting, glad we're talking about the, the history steps. of the flute. Yeah. The history of the flute. <laughs> but, but, so I'm playing with these musicians during the, during the 60s down the village. We're playing different clubs. And then we were traveling with Tim Harden, Electric Circus, Fillmore, you know, places where there was only a few jazz artists were playing those clubs in the 60s. It was like uh, Keith Jarrett was playing with, I'm trying to think of who was the saxophone player. You would know. Dewey Redman? No. Oh, that was before Dewey? Uh, With Keith Jarrett? Yeah, it was Keith Jarrett, Don McC McClure, and it'll come to me some, at some point. Do you he guys had know? a couple of hit records, too. And. Uh, oh, <laughs> and was it was Charles Lloyd. Charles Lloyd. Like Charles would play. Yes. Charles Lloyd, uh, Keith was playing with him, but they were playing, you know, to the Electric Circus crowd. Mm -hmm. So they'd be like rock bands. Jeremy also and Larry Coriel. I'm not sure if Gary Burton at that time. This is pre-Miles first. Right, pre-jazz pre rock fusion. Right. Oh, so, so I started this jam band, rehearsal band. I don't want to repeat myself from the first our first interview, I'm not sure that we talked about this, but I'll make it quick, because I was doing so many sessions and I was sort of was producing records and arranging for different artists. At night, some, some studios were what they called dark, and I knew the engineer and I was able to get into the, into the studios and use the studios just to have a jam session. And I would call Donald and Eddie, Hugh McCracken, David Spinoza, Tony Levin, you know, and then later Steve Gadd. And whoever wanted to show up would show up. And then it would be like, sometimes it'd be like seven, eight musicians. Sometimes it'd be like five guitar players. Peace of mind 
Thanks for joining us for the second in a series of interviews of Mike Maneri. 
uh, done by Dave Schroeder of the NYU School. We want to thank various people in connection with that, in particular the NYU uh, Jazz Interview Series, led by Dave Schroeder with producers Joseph Villa, Ed Barada, Shake Up Productions, made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. Um, I want to thank, in particular, Silvano Monasterios for making available his uh, the theme music for our for the Jam Session Radio Hour from his tune Tropical Mirage. I want to thank Fernando Valaderos for his participation in Choice of Music and making music available. And thanks so much to Rafael Alvarez for the great work that he does in post-production and in co-production of this. And thank you to our musical director, Klaas Brandahl. Thank you to WLIW um, for having us. And uh, thank you to all of you for listening and staying tuned. Stay tuned uh, next week, hopefully, for the third in this series. But in the meantime, stay well, be healthy, um, this is John Landis signing off for the Jam Session Radio Hour. Good night.